We're going to hear the Bible read to us now. Uh, but before we do that, let me pray uh, that God might prepare our hearts to hear his word. Let's pray together. Our God, we thank you for the precious gift of your word. Uh, we thank you for your servant, the Apostle Paul, who wrote this remarkable letter through the inspiration of your Holy Spirit. Lord, as we hear it read now and uh, preached to us, please open our hearts. Please help us to receive it, uh, to entrust ourselves to your good news, to build our life on the rock of Christ. Uh, please open our ears today and give us soft hearts to receive your word and to live in the, its light so that we might live lives that are pleasing to you. And we pray that for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Reading from Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through him we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you, in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be opened for me to come to you. I long to see you, so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Shall we pray? Our loving and gracious Father, thank you that we can look at this wonderful passage of Scripture and we praise you for the assurance that comes from clarity about the gospel. And we pray that this term, term two, would be a wonderful time to grow deeper in the truths of what Jesus has done for us and you would settle our hearts and we would understand you better and love you more. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's great to be with you once again. And uh, over the 
last couple of weeks um, as a result of being isolated. Uh, many of us have had our normal routines disrupted and some of us who've been connecting online have done so for the first time. Hello, if you're here again, it's good to see you. And uh, comments have been coming back that really because there has been a disruption to life, uh, people have been thinking more about what is life really all about, what's important in life, and also people have been made aware of their own mortality and then issues of life and of death and what happens afterwards have been raised. And so some people have thought, you know, if there is a God, uh, am I good enough? Um, am I acceptable? Uh, will things be okay for me? And then others, of course, have said, even if I believe in God, and even though I might know about Jesus, uh, what if my response to him has in some way been deficient? That is, uh, maybe I began well, but there have been periods of lapse. There might have been periods of unbelief. Um, or I might say, yes, there was a time and for much of my life I've said Jesus is Lord and I've acknowledged that. But what if I still struggle with sin? Um, does that mean I'm resisting the spirit? And if that's true, what does that mean about the genuineness of my conversion? And what does that mean really about where I stand with God? So people have been, uh, shall we say, unsettled. Well, in the New Testament letter of Romans, Paul the Apostle, the Apostle to the Gentiles, that is our Apostle, he writes to a very mature Christian church um, and he sets out the gospel. That is his main reason for writing. That's what makes the letter of Romans unique. Uh, he's not writing to address false teaching. He's not writing to deal with issues of immorality or issues of division in the church. The reason why he writes is to set out the gospel message. Now, the fact that he does this for an established church tells us that it's Paul's belief that you can never actually go past the gospel. Uh, it's worth spending time in. Uh, that's how people who believe in Jesus grow deeper in maturity. That's how they arm themselves against false teaching. That's how they grow in obedience. And of course, for people who are exploring things, that's, that's really how they come to know God. Uh, and that's where they get deep assurance. So for wherever you are in your faith journey, by setting out the gospel again in the book of Romans, this is really a time for us to grow deeper and more assured in our faith. And for those unsettled aspects of our life, the, the questions that we have, we may only voice them to ourselves. This is a chance for those questions to be settled and for us to grow deeper and more assured in what God has done for us. So um, <clears throat> that's the aim of this term. Uh, and we will be tackling the whole question of assurance and we'll be using Romans chapter 8, a brilliant chapter in the heart of the gospel, and, sorry, the middle of uh, Paul's book to the Romans. We'll be using that as a launching pad to explore different questions of assurance. But it makes sense that today we begin where Romans begins, and that is at the introduction. Um, as we kick off the series. Now, in this introductory bit, Romans 1, 1 to 17, Paul sets out what the gospel is 
And then he gives us a summary of his main point, which we'll be unpacking throughout um, our time. Okay. And uh, Paul, in uh, this part of the introduction, gives us clarity, really, about the gospel message and therefore clarity about assurance, the basis for our assurance. So let's go through it. It begins in verse 1. Paul says, Paul, a servant, literally a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. That happened on the Damascus Road, Acts chapter 9, if you want to read that story. Called to be an apostle and set apart by the risen Jesus for the gospel. Now, of course, this begs the question, and it was raised in the kids' talk, what is a gospel? Is it just a religious word? No, it isn't. Uh, a gospel, that word, gospel, is, is a secular word. Uh, literally, it meant good news or news of victory. This wasn't just uh, minor good news. I found a car spot. <laughs> I got a present. Uh, no, no, no. This is news that shakes the world. This is news that would change the life of someone if they heard it. It's the news of an astounding victory, which means a whole nation state now is affected or countries now are affected. It's big, big news. It was the news announced by Pheidippides in 490 BC. So when the Persian army landed their ships on the coast of Marathon in Greece to wage war against the Athenians, Pheidippides, who was an Athenian, he was sent to run 75 miles to Sparta to ask the Spartans for help. Of course, when he got there, that was no good because he found the Spartans busy celebrating some religious festival. So then Pheidippides had to run 75 miles back to find that the battle uh, was in full fury. Then um, at Marathon, when it was all over, uh, he ran another 22 miles to Athens to announce his gospel to the city elders, whereupon he collapsed dead. Uh, The gospel, his gospel... Uh, was one word, and it was this, victory, victory. That's what a gospel is. It's the news of a victory, a victory which means salvation from an attacking enemy news, which by its nature um, changes the future, the destiny, if you like, of all the people who hear it. And it's news which by its nature must be shared. It has to be passed on. It is relevant for everyone, um, everyone there. Okay. Paul says he's been set apart for the gospel. Now, whose gospel? Did it uh, originate with Paul or the disciples as something that they or anyone else made up? We have to ask this question. Uh, People who think they know a lot about uh, Jesus um, sometimes dismiss him and say, oh, Jesus' disciples just made it up. Okay. Uh, Some people who may actually know a bit more, that is, they do know something, might say, ah, but Paul really changed Jesus' message. Uh, His gospel was different to Jesus. Well, now Paul's setting forth the gospel, and now we ask, did he make it up? Or did the disciples make it up? Where did it come from, this message? Well, look at verse 1. Paul was set apart for the gospel of God, meaning that the gospel is not Paul's gospel, it is God's gospel. It belongs to God. It originates with God. God passed on his good news to Paul uh, for Paul then to share. This is the gospel that has come to us. It was delivered to Paul and Paul delivered it to other people and passed it on. Because it's God's gospel, 
no one is free to tamper with it. And that, of course, means that we have to be really clear about what the gospel is, which, first of all, means we have to ask, well, what's the background to the whole thing? What's its context? The answer is there in verse 2. The gospel that God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Um, the gospel was laid out, um, or the plans for it were laid out in the Bible, in the Old Testament. What that means is that the gospel, when it came, it wasn't God's plan B because his plan A somehow failed. You know, maybe, maybe the thought is he planned to save the world by imposing a law and setting up a temple, but that didn't work. So then he came up with a different plan, plan B. Not the case, not the case. The news of salvation, uh, which is in the gospel, um, that would one day come and has now come, was spoken of in advance. So the Old Testament is the context for understanding the gospel. And that begs now the question, what is the gospel about? Well, the gospel is all about a person. It's about a person. In verse 1, Paul said he's set apart for the gospel. Verse 3 tells us who it's about. Regarding his son. God's gospel is all about Jesus, God's son. Now, that's helpful for me. Uh, as a Christian, because I know that if somehow I've got in conversation with someone about God, but I haven't actually mentioned God's Son, Jesus, then I haven't shared with them the gospel, because the gospel is all about Jesus. I can't share the gospel without specifically speaking of him. So we ask the question, well, what in particular is it about Jesus that constitutes the gospel? There's two things. Now, First, I want you to put your finger in the Bibles, close them, right? And then I want you to complete this sentence in your head. The message of the gospel is what? The message of the gospel is what? Just pause for a moment, turn to the person beside you on the lounge and see if you can repeat that sentence and complete it. The message of the gospel is go. Okay, now swap. Give the other person a chance. The message of the gospel is... Okay. All right. Now, my guess is that uh, if you've been a Christian for some time or you're aware of Christian things, you might have said something like, the message of the gospel is that Jesus died for our sins so we can be forgiven, or God gives eternal life to those who believe in Jesus. Now... Go back to Romans chapter 1 and see whether that's what Paul wrote. Verse 3, the gospel is regarding God's Son, and now mention, Paul mentions two points. Number one, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David. And two, who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. That is Paul's gospel. Were they the points you got? Uh, hands up. Hands up now. We Pretend I can see you. Hands up if, if, if those are the points that you wrote down. If you include, hands up if you included Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Okay. Hands up, keep your hand up, if you actually mentioned that he was a descendant from King David. Okay. Yet that is God's gospel. A few quick comments. Okay, here we go. First of all, Jesus' death. 
It's not explicit, is it, in what Paul said, but it's implicit. It's impossible to have a resurrection without a death first. Okay. Second point, repentance and faith will come in verse 5, but they are actually not part of the gospel. They're a must. They're a necessary application of the gospel. If you hear the gospel, you have to respond in this way. That's the the required response to the gospel. Um, But they're not part of God's news of victory. Thirdly, the gospel message is much more than Jesus is saviour for sins. This comes out in uh, the idea that he was descended from David. Okay, without a whole other talk on that, uh, what it's doing is it's picking, that, that phrase is picking up God's promise that he would send a king that would come from David's line, who would rule over an eternal kingdom that would eventually uh, encompass all nations. It would grow to be the biggest kingdom of all. And Jesus would be the king. He would be the ruler of that kingdom. So, fourthly, as well as Jesus being the king of the kingdom God saves people into, Jesus' resurrection from the dead marks the moment when he is appointed in the eyes of the world with power to be the Son of God. Um, He is appointed to be the one who brings salvation to everyone who looks to him. And fifthly, the summary of the gospel, if you had to summarize it down into just four simple words, is this. Jesus Christ is Lord. It's more than Jesus is the Saviour. Jesus Christ is Lord. Because being the kingdom, king of the kingdom that he saves us into, he also becomes our Lord. Now, if that's the content of the gospel, what's its scope? Verse 5. We received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles. Now, verse 14 speaks of Paul's obligation to speak to the Greeks and the barbarians. They're the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people who don't speak Greek, right? Greeks, non-Greek Gentiles. It's a way of describing all Gentiles from all the nations. And verse 16 also mentions the Jews as well as the Gentiles. So the scope of the gospel is international and encompasses everyone. It is meant for everyone. Now, obviously, that then creates a need for people to hear it, doesn't it? Mission, therefore, should be on the radar and the agenda of every person who believes in the gospel. So if the scope of the gospel is international, what's then its purpose? Verse 5. The purpose is to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience of faith. Now, if you're reading the New International Version translation of the Bible, the NIV, it will translate that as the obedience which comes from faith. That is, the obedience is the sort of uh, fruit, if you like, of faith. Now, that is one possibility, and Paul will develop that theme later on in the book of Romans. But another equally possible translation here is that faith, in fact, is the obedience that God requires. It's the obedience of faith, that we obey God by exercising faith. We choose to trust in him, and we choose to trust in his message. Sometimes I go to a funeral, and I might hear the comment, from someone who says, I wish I could just have your faith. I wish I could believe, almost as if it's something that they have no control over. Now, in one way that is true. Faith is a gift from God. But in another way, it isn't. People can choose uh, to trust in a message. 
And that's the obedience that God requires. Well, finally, if the purpose of the gospel is to call people to the obedience of faith, what is its ultimate goal? The ultimate goal of the gospel is Jesus' glory. Verse 5, through him and for his namesake, we call people to the obedience of faith. In the end, the reason why God gives his gospel and the reason why God makes it known is not for Paul's glory. It's not for the glory of any church. It is for Jesus' glory. Jesus' glory. To see his name honoured and revered and rejoiced in around the world. Why? Because he is the one enthroned through his resurrection as the king of God's kingdom. He is the one who's, who's been exalted as the saviour for all the world. It's all about him. So in the first five verses, Paul gives us great clarity about the gospel message. But this isn't just rhetorical and it's not just theoretical. It's personal. It transforms our lives and it creates community and it creates fellowship. And we see this in the fellowship of the gospel illustrated in verses 7 to 13. Paul calls those that he writes to as those loved by God. He calls them saints, which are those who have been made holy by God. Instead of um, beginning his letter in the usual way that ancient letters began, which is to wish someone health and prosperity, he wishes them grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, so that even the way Christians greet one another has been changed by the gospel. And there's a richness of fellowship here that is very, very deep. Paul thanks God for them. He's very thankful personally. In verse 9, God is his witness, how constantly he remembers them in his prayers at all times. There's a great connection, isn't there? In verse 10, he prays that God would open the way for him to come and see them because he, he longs to impart to them some spiritual gift that will make them strong. And at the same time, there's a mutuality of fellowship that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. And then there's also an expectation of fruitfulness. At the end of verse 13, he says he's looking forward to a harvest among them. Other people in Rome becoming Christians, uh, they themselves growing in maturity, a strengthening of the bonds of fellowship as they support him in his future mission plans off to Spain. What we're seeing is real gospel fellowship, which comes from a group of people which have been formed by the gospel and united in the gospel and, it can, and continues to be defined by the good news of Jesus. Now, that is a reality of relationship which every Christian uh, enjoys with other fellow believers. Uh, we enjoy it. The gospel creates this fellowship. We're connected with each other. We have deep connection with each other, deeper even than blood. You can meet someone who you've never met before. You find out you're a Christian. You're both Christians. And then uh, you might be of different language groups, uh, different, totally different cultural backgrounds. But because you believe the same deep message, which has eternal significance for you and which has a person at the centre who is not you, it's Jesus, and you hold him both dear, there is immense richness and fellowship uh, that the gospel creates. You have the same hope 
you have the same joy. Okay. So the gospel creates deep and lasting fellowship. And that, by the way, is one reason why it's always worth going to church and why it's impossible to be a solo Christian. Now, I know that sometimes people have had bad experiences and they've been hurt in the past by what happens in church. And if you're watching now and that's true for you, I'm truly sorry that that's true for you. But I want to say you still have connection with other Christian believers. And so as gently as I'm able to say, I'd like to invite you back to church. And I want to just thank you. And I'm so glad that you're here and you're connecting um, via church in your lounge room today. And I hope when this season of COVID is, is over, that you'll actually find the courage to come and connect in person. And I'd love you to come to our church, Trinity Church Aldgate, but there are other churches of um, Bible-loving, gospel-based, Jesus-centric uh, believers around the world. And you can find one to connect into. Okay, enough of that. Now, what obligation does uh, the gospel message create when it's received? That is, what is to stop Trinity Church Aldgate, for example, just being a nice little social club that's inward-looking and insular? Well, there are many things that would stop that. But the message, the message of the gospel, that's foundational. Verse 14. Paul says he's obligated both to the Greeks and the non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. Now, how do we understand this? When we say that we're obligated... Usually we use that word in the sense of having to pay someone back for something that they have done for you. Uh, we're indebted to them. That is not the sense uh, that Paul uses the word here. Paul's not driven by guilt. Because, of course, you can be obligated in a second way when someone's handed you something that you, therefore, should pass on. When you post a letter, for example, you give it to Australia Post... And you expect them to deliver. And they have been challenged, haven't they, during these times. But that's the expectation. We expect that they will hand it on. You place them under obligation. Well, that's the sense of Paul's obligation to the Greeks and the non-Greeks with the gospel. That is, he has received this astounding message uh, from Jesus himself. And this is good news for all the world. In other words, it belongs to the world. It doesn't just belong to Paul. It's their good news as well as his. And so therefore he's obligated to pass it on. Now this may not sound revolutionary, but it changed the way I think, and perhaps you can resonate with this. Uh, for many years, I was very reluctant to speak to people about Jesus if they weren't believers. Uh, because I thought, who am I to impose my views on them? Almost as if it would be an imposition um, and it would put them out. However, I was thinking about the gospel all wrong. I was thinking about it that it was mine and, you know, they have their life, I have my views about what's good. No, no, no. The gospel actually is good news for them. It, it is their news. It is their good news and it's right, it's right that it should be handed on to them. Um, you know, for example, if I suddenly got wind of the news that someone had developed a vaccine for COVID-19 and the news was only just going coming out. Well, I should tell that to people. 
if, so, if, if a vaccine was now available at uh, your local um, GP, I should tell people who aren't connected via social media, who, who maybe didn't know. I should tell them it's their good news. It's not just mine. It's news that should be shared. The gospel of Jesus, God's gospel is like that. Okay. Um, it's good news for people. It's not like we're forcing um, an imposition on them. No, no, no. We're awakening them to news which is good for them. They may not know it, but they will when we tell them. So this is Paul's realisation. The gospel is the unpaid debt to the world. But his really big realisation that makes him speak with confidence is in verse 16. And this is a truth that's changed our world. That is, that the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. It's not, it's not that the gospel is sort of a magic formula say the magic words, hey, presto, or open sesame, and then someone just enters into heaven. No, no, no. In the gospel, the message about Jesus, a righteousness from God is revealed, is made known. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now, it's this realisation that Paul spends the next 14 chapters in Romans unpacking, and it's this realisation that we will be jumping into again and again during this term. It's this realisation that will give us great assurance when our hearts are unsettled. So, it's this realisation that's contained in these verses that has changed the world, and that's really what I just want to say today. I want to give you two examples. The first one is of Martin Luther, who would go on to kickstart the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, and the world has been forever changed because of it. You see, in Luther's story, he was an Augustinian monk. He followed Augustus <laughs> uh, from the 4th century. Um, Luther, as an Augustinian monk, he would confess later on he never knew God as saviour. He only ever knew God as judge. And he felt himself condemned by God, no matter how hard he tried to live righteously. Well, it was in meditating on these two verses, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, that Luther rediscovered the gospel of grace and the world was changed. He wrote later on, reflecting back at that moment, At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. As it is written, he through faith is righteous shall live. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous live. Don't die, not die, but live. By a gift of God, namely, by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself. Now, his language might be old, but we can see his logic. Paul tells him that the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. He thinks, how can that be so? Because he knows that he himself isn't righteous. Well, it could only be so if a righteous that wasn't his own, 
came to him as a gift from God and was received as a gift, a righteousness which belonged to Jesus, but gets counted as ours when we put our trust in him. It's that realisation that changed the world and shaped church life from then on. I want you to fast forward from then to 1738 in London. It was as John Wesley, an Anglican clergyman, heard a reading of Martin Luther's own conversion from Romans 1 that he himself said he felt his heart strangely warmed and he dated his conversion from that moment. And again, the conversion of John Wesley changed the world. Wesley founded the Methodist movement, which gives us Bible study groups, and historically Pentecostalism traces its origins back to John Wesley. What I'm saying is the realisation that Paul got was that the gospel of Jesus tells us for sure how sinners like you and me can be right with God. Okay, let me draw this together. With gospel clarity comes deep gospel assurance. Uh, the news of the gospel is big. It's a big message. It's bigger than just saying, uh, Jesus is our saviour. Uh, believe in Jesus and you go to heaven. The gospel is the announcement that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's Lord of salvation. He's Lord of you. He's Lord of me. He's able to save completely those who trust in him. And he's also king of the kingdom of God. So being saved doesn't mean that we just can live however we want. Uh, to be saved means to live as a citizen of the kingdom of God with Jesus as your king. That will, in the end, transform every part of your life and it'll take a lifetime to work that out. But also, secondly, um, uncertainty about the gospel breeds fear. Uh, why do we struggle with these issues of assurance? It's because we're not certain about the gospel. And so we need to get great gospel clarity and apply it to our own fears. Being clear about the gospel gives us confidence. Um, over the years I've done funerals and I remember one particularly tragic one I had to do a funeral for the parents of a baby who died at only 22 days and it was their only child and they'd been struggling to have children and finally they had a baby boy and little Ezra died after 22 days well I walked with them through that time it was a tragic tragic time and of course they were heartbroken but here's what they said. They said, beforehand, we were reluctant to tell people the gospel because we thought it might be rude for them. Now we tell everyone because it's the only hope we have. And they had hoped and prayed that their little boy would grow up to be strong in the gospel, that others would come to know God through him. But then he died. And so now it was their prayer that through his death and through the message given at his funeral, people would come to know God through Jesus who died and rose again and gives life and light and immortality to all who believe in him. The gospel gives massive assurance, but we've got to be clear on it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, please help us to be clear about this wonderful message that is life-changing and life-transforming. And we pray that in the 
complicated doubts in our own minds, uh, the struggles we have with sin, you would iron out our doubts and fears. And wherever we are in our faith journey, you'd help us to trust in Jesus more and to hang on to your message and to hear it really clearly and to have it applied to every part of our lives. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.